0: It i, 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 Shalom, shalom, friends. Great to see you. Thank you for joining us today. We're also joined by a special guest here today of uh, Socrates. Um, I, When I was a uh, uh, a college student and went to Greece, I, I put this thing in my bag and carried it all the way back. But ever since, I've kept it in my office to be reminded by the intellectual rigor that Socrates represented. So he's going to be our special guest here today uh, with us. Um, so I'm very excited to be a part of class five with you all. After today, we will fast forward out of the Greeks into the medievals um, before we fast forward into the modernity, but we can't, um, Aristotle needs his time and his, uh, and his right place that he is, uh, he deserves in this session. So let's start with a poll question, little poll question for you all to consider, What is most central in ethics? Is it the consequences of our actions upon others? Is it our duties? Or is it the cultivation of our virtues? Wow, wow. 67% here say it's the consequences of our actions upon others. As we shall see as we go on, that fits into the camp of utilitarianism or consequentialism. no one here says our duties, which will fit into Kant, which says it um, in the in the category of deontology. It is uh, we cannot predict our consequences. What matters are that is that we fulfill our duties. Um, and thirty three percent here that say the cultivation of our virtues. Aristotle would be very proud of the thirty three percent of you um, who says um, duties are superficial and we can't predict our consequences. But what matters is that I am becoming a more virtuous person each day. Okay, very interesting. We will get to that point of ethics in Aristotle shortly. So let's launch in as usual, I'll share a presentation prepared, and then um, we will move into conversation. So friends, how do we know an idea is true? Is the observable more important than the speculative? Does everything have a purpose that it's pulling towards? Aristotle is the Greek philosopher to have maybe the the greatest direct impact on the path Jewish thought will later take in the Middle Ages. And the ideas he raises are ones that, unlike with other thinkers, we have used extensively as points and counterpoints in many of our essential books throughout Jewish history. Aristotle was the third and final of the classic sequence of the chain of essential Greek philosophers. Socrates, Plato, and then Aristotle. Just as Plato was a student of Socrates, Aristotle was a student of Plato. These appear to have been his main influences since his parents tragically died when he was only about around 13 years old, and he was raised by a guardian. Now, not just, uh, he was no schlub, his name was Proxinius of Atarnius, was his guardian, who actually later married Aristotle's sister. Aristotle's father, who was also no schlub, Nicomachus, who was the personal physician to King Amintus of Macedon, and it seems he had a very deep early influence on Aristotle by teaching him science. Aristotle began learning with Plato later in Plato's life, when Plato was around 60, and studied with him until Plato's death around the age of 82. So that means Aristotle started around 18 and ended um, around 40 uh, as, as Plato's direct student. However, Aristotle's philosophy dramatically diverged from Plato's path. He seems to have been shocked to not have been chosen as Plato's successor after Plato died. And so he left for Athens for when um, he left he left Athens in disappointment for Ionia. Now, interesting enough, um, it was Plato's nephew who was chosen to lead instead of Aristotle. And I don't know how to pronounce his name. It's something like Spousippus. Spousippus. <laughs> Aristotle tutored Alexander the Great starting in 343 BCE. He also taught other future kings like Telmi and, and Cassander. Aristotle founded the peripatetic school, which was a philosophical academy in Athens whose members conducted philosophical and scientific inquiries. The school declined after the middle of the third century BCE, but it was revived later in the Roman era. Only about one-third of Aristotle's writings had survived, and it's not clear that he wanted any of those that remained to ever be published at all. These writings include the first formal studies of logic. That's what Aristotle's most famous for, by and large. He, of course, had a large influence on medieval Muslim thinkers, where some even referred to him as quote unquote the first teacher, because he's, you know, um, a millennium before um, uh, Muhammad. He also had a large influence on medieval Christian scholars, where someone like Thomas Aquinas. Would would refer to him as quote unquote the philosopher, and Dante would refer to him as quote-unquote the master of those who know. <laughs> as we shall explore, Maimonides was Maimonides was blown away by Aristotle, as well, referring to him as the chief of the philosophers. In a letter to Shmuel ibn Tibon, Maimonides writes that there is no need to study any philosophy. That precedes Aristotle. In substance, Aristotle's philosophy was more methodical and dependent on observation of the world and how it functioned, as opposed to Plato's emphasis on intuition, right? So, if you're a person who likes to say, trust your gut, then that's gonna fit more with Plato, right? We have an intuition of what's right and wrong. But if you're someone who thinks we have to study what's right and wrong, observe the world, engage in empiricism, right? Then then you're going to be more inclined towards Aristotle. Because of this, Aristotle ultimately rejected Plato's theory of forms. He could not accept them because they could not be proven by Aristotle's scholarly scrutiny, right? He wants to be able to prove, to engage in experiments, to be, be able to approve what's ultimately true, rather than uh, engage in the abstract. While Plato was occupied with ideals, Aristotle was interested in studying things as they were observable. Why do we need to be distracted, Aristotle thought, by the unprovable and the hypothetical? Aristotle was instead a pioneer in the field of logic, believing in the power of reason. He developed the principles of syllogism and deductive reasoning. That is to say, one can create an argument whose structure guarantees its validity, uh, which is to quote him directly. Um, The most commonly taught example of this is, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. Um, Aristotle applied his methods to his study of the natural world, taking an interest in animals and the earth. While Plato's background was in the more abstract field of math, Aristotle's father was a physician rooted in science and the practical. Today, of course, we see deep connections with science and math, but in the ancient world, these were considered in many ways very different. Math was a hypothetical project, an abstract project, and science is rooted in in realities and and observable realities. In the Jewish realm, Aristotle's thought, Heavily influenced the thought of Maimonides, as previously mentioned, who lived in the 12th century CE and as a renowned physician was one of the most impactful Jewish philosophers and Torah scholars of all time. He picked up Aristotle's philosophy from his Muslim neighbors and modified it for a Jewish worldview. So it's important to note here that um, Maimonides is fluent in many languages, but he writes in Judeo-Arabic. Right. It's kind of like how we think of Yiddish today. Yiddish, of course, is a combination of Hebrew and German. Um, Judeo-Arabic is a combination of Hebrew and Arabic, but heavily aligned with um, with with Arabic. And he is studying the Greeks uh, through um, Arabic, through the Muslim scholars of his time. That's how he's accessing these folks. Um, now, it's important to remember that. um the golden age of Spain, which crashed in Maimonides' lifetime. He had to leave Spain, of course, and and moved in exile to Egypt. And that is where he um, is going to be, you know, a physician for for the leader. And he's also gonna be engaged uh, in, you know, uh, with these Islamic scholars. Um, And Jews are treated relatively well. Uh, Yeah, Averis, who we're gonna come to. Thanks, Averis, we're gonna come to. And Avicenna, Um, and um, uh, and of course Jews are still second-class citizens at best. But um, Jews are generally treated better in Muslim societies than Christian societies throughout history, um, with with obviously many exceptions. the 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 rise of deep of deep anti-Semitism. There's always anti-Semitism throughout Islamic thought. But the rise of kind of uh, Islamic anti-Semitism as we as we see today, which um, uh, studies by the ADL—I know I'm taking a big tangent right now—but studies by the ADL show that among religious groups, anti-Semitism globally is highest among Muslims, um, much higher than among Christians, Buddhists, and Hindus. Although there's anti-Semitism among every group, um, and and um, and um, and only part of that actually is due to the Muslim. To the, to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, it's also deeply rooted in some of the scriptures of is, of Islam as well. In any case, um, that's a big tangent, which we can come back to if there's interest. In any case, um, yes, so Maimonides is accessing Aristotle through these folks. Of course, it, Maimonides, uh, my, I, Maimonides is accessing Aristotle through these Muslim thinkers. Maimonides is important enough that he will have his own session among the 40. Um, Uh, which is more likely going to be 45, and that is because uh, he influenced the world, and and that's what we're going to look at as well. He didn't only influence the Jews. Beyond the significant number of times Rambam, Maimonides, references Aristotle in his own works, we can see Aristotle's footprint in how Maimonides also placed such a strong emphasis on this worldly matters, focusing on halacha, which for this purpose we can translate halacha as how we walk in this world and how central that is to Jewish life. While it's tempting for anyone to think excessively about what will happen after this life and after this world, Maimonides believes we can't know so much about what's coming, so we should focus on this life. He, he writes, all these and similar matters cannot be de- definitely known by people until they occur, for these matters are undefined in the prophet's words, and even the wise people have no established tradition regarding these matters, except their own interpretation of the verses. Therefore, there's a controversy among them regarding these matters. Now, we might think of, of 20th century thinkers as the ones who were most responsible for moving Judaism away from eschatology and away from theologies of afterlife and of reincarnation and of heaven and hell and the like. Um, but this happens much earlier. Maimonides himself is pushing us away from such speculation and wants to root us in this world, just as Aristotle was pushing away from Plato in a way that was engaged in kind of um, you know the um, transformation of souls and the uh, transmigration of souls. In that respect, we can say Aristotle's worldview feels somewhat Jewish. Yes, Judaism has deep thought on mysticism and eschatology, but it's primarily a lived practice that is about sanctifying this life and this known reality. Perhaps living in the world of physicians rooted both Aristotle and Maimonides in the tangible, in the here and now. While a Jewish mystic might feel a connection to Plato, with his belief uh, in the forms or ideals and how they can be recognized innately, a Jewish rationalist can easily feel represented in part by Aristotle, who was a proponent of study. Right, We don't just know things through meditation. We need to study things and analyze them. Now, to be sure, both Aristotle and Rambam placed a big emphasis on philosophizing as a form of metaphysical contemplation. The worldly matters are necessary, but ultimately just a distraction from where we should ideally direct our energies. This is why Maimonides writes in the Mishnah Torah that the messianic age is about having the free time to contemplate God, right? So Maimonides in this regular world wants to be in this world as we know it, but in a messianic era, he wants to go to another level where we meditate upon God. Now. We can strive to do some of that in this life, but we have a job and we have to raise kids and we got to go grocery shopping and fold our laundry and do a whole bunch of stuff like that. So how much can you really do of that? Okay, maybe five minutes a day, maybe an hour a day if you're if you're really invested. Um, um, but in the messianic era, we're going to be free from those things. And there we can contemplate God all the time, Maimonides is going to say. So there is a split in Maimonides and kind of how he views Um, you know, this world as we know it and how we view kind of an ideal world. So they are both focused on the virtues and the laws that we should live by daily in this world. But the ideal for Maimonides is indeed to escape this world towards a deeper contemplative life. As usual, Maimonides is full of contradictions. Is life about this world or beyond this world? For Maimonides, yes and yes. For Maimonides, the Torah and philosophy convey similar truths and therefore one cannot contradict the other. Because of this, he read the Torah non-literally in such a way that allowed him to show how it conveyed philosophical truths such as God's incorporeality and God's oneness, right? Maimonides wants to do away with the absurd. Now that's going to lead many to call him a heretic. They're going to burn his book in his day. Right, I like to say to rabbis who are under fire for controversial views, the greatest rabbi of all time, perhaps they they were burning his books, calling him a heretic as well. You know, and so you're in good company if they're coming after you. (laughs) And so, um, but Maimonides was radical in this regard. He says all those things you find distasteful in the Torah because they seem so outlandish. Those aren't literal. Those are a dream, or those are trying to teach an idea. Right. You're not sure if a flood happened, don't worry. It's teaching a moral and spiritual point, not a historical one, right? You don't think that Billam and the donkey are talking. Don't worry. This was all a dream of Billam, right? Um, you know, what's another? There's so many other cases like this um, where the things that seem um, not that not to fit with the rational world of logic as we know it, that seem like super miraculous... Um, are, are, are in fact, didn't happen historically. You know, the, the Raabag, Gersonides, who follows the path of Maimonides, even shows how the story of the of the splitting of the sea, the splitting of the sea was not a literal splitting of the sea. There he says, this was a natural occurrence that happened in what happened with the sea. It was just amazing that it happened at the moment that they needed it. That was the miracle. Not that the laws of nature were suspended, Um, But the laws of nature were always intact. What was miraculous was the timing. Additionally, Maimonides viewed it as, as essential that the mitzvot be understood as neither arbitrary nor containing mystical secrets, but rather reflecting a rational purpose. Every single one of them has a rational purpose. To determine this purpose, he took a teleological approach drawn from Aristotle, who taught that there are four causes for why things come to be. By the way, teleological is just a fancy way of saying that everything has a telos. Everything has a purpose embedded in its nature, right? Some people think humans are created without a purpose. We're just here randomly, right? There's a big bang and there's we're just a product of you know bi- biological realities. There's no inherent purpose to our lives. Um, and religions, and Judaism most certainly as well, comes to think there is a purpose to human existence, there is a purpose to the Jewish people, and they will debate about what those purposes are, right? Um, And so um, um, Maimonides embraces this teleological approach based upon Aristotle, and here are four causes for why things come to be. This precedes the conversation of the purpose of human existence. Number one, the material cause, which is what something is made of. Number two, the formal cause, the shape, the stuff it's made up of. Number three, the efficient cause, how it is brought into being. And lastly, the final cause, which means the purpose of a thing. And so we'll see later with David Hume that that the problematic nature that emerges in modernity of causation, right? Are things really caused by what we think they are? Did God really do what we just, what some think, take for granted God did? Or was that a law of nature? Or did we take for granted something was a law of nature? It just, we just assume that's what was causing it. And actually, I mean, anybody who's a scientist here or in, in the field of medicine um, understands how complicated it is um, to, de- to determine any forms of causation. Um, and there's constant experiments and learning around correlation and causation. So too, regarding the mitzvot, Maimonides argued how they were to bring about certain goals of philosophical and ethical importance. For example, practices such as eating meat and milk together were understood as being connected to idol worship, and therefore the Torah forbid them so as to ensure Jews would stay away as far away from idolatry as possible. So that's that's a radical approach by Maimonides. Maimonides doesn't think, there's some deeper mystical meaning to not having cheese on a burger. He thinks the idolaters engaged in this sort of thing. And so that's why we that such a law is about moving us away from idolatry. He makes um, interesting shifts like this all the time. Here, there's an overlap between Aristotle and the Jewish mystics, who believe that everything in creation is encoded with a divine purpose. Right? So just to be really clear here, um, Maimonides thinks there is a rational reason for every mitzvah. He calls this the, the ta'amei ha-mitzvot that each mitzvah could be understood rationally as having a purpose. The mystics think that there is a a divine purpose, a deeper mystical dimension that is not is either irrational or irrational, or maybe occasionally rational. Um, that is kind of deep, more deeply embedded. For example, not eating meat and milk together. Um, would 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 affect the soul. It would affect the soul in ways we can't understand if we were to. So it's written in the Tanya, which is a foundational text of Chabad Hasidism. This thought was expressed by the Ari, Isaac Luria, the the originator of Lurianic Kabbalah, out of Sfat, of blessed memory, when he said that even in completely inanimate matters. Such as stones or earth or water, there is a soul and spiritual life force that is the enclothing of the letters of speech of the Ten Utterances, right? The Ten Commandments. Oh, no, sorry, not the Ten Commandments. The Ten Utterances of creation, which give life and existence to inanimate matter that it might arise out of the naught and nothingness, which preceded the six days of creation, right? So if you're a mystic, you think there is light within everything. There's not just humans created, but Selim Elohim in the image of God. Rather, there are sparks of divinity in everything, in rocks, in water, in animals, in, 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 in everything. And tikkun olam, repairing the world, is elevating those sparks and reuniting those disparate sparks back into unity. If you're a rationalist, um, that you're not doing mitzvot to, to elevate the sparks that are in all of creation, you're doing it for the purpose of that unique mitzvah, which is rational. Very different approach. The ultimate purpose of creation for those folks, then, is for human beings to elevate the spiritual life force in all things to bring us to a better world. However, all traditional Jewish philosophers would disagree with Aristotle's belief that the world was not created at all, that it simply always existed. Maimonides writes in his guide for the perplexed, and here he does disagree with his teacher, if we were to accept the eternity of the universe as taught by Aristotle, that everything in the universe is the result of fixed laws, that nature does not change, and that there is nothing supernatural, we should necessarily be in opposition to the foundation of our religion. We should disbelieve all miracles and signs and certainly reject all hopes and fears derived from scripture. So it is It is uh, pervasive and ubiquitous Um, uh, throughout Jewish thinkers, the belief in creation. Now, creation might mean creationism, right? God literally created a world in seven days, or it may be Big Bang, right? If you haven't read Daniel Matt's book, Creation and the Big Bang, it's worth reading how to think about those two uh, together. Um, In any case, that Maimonides is adamant that the world does have an origin. There is a beginning point. It's not eternal. Only God is eternal. And so he explicitly will reject um, Aristotle on this point. Rambam adds later on, if the universal is eternal, there's no way for humanity to meaningfully improve it. And therefore, there is no greater purpose for the human being. Here's how he explains this in his writings. Aristotle, who assumes the eternity of the universe needs to not ask to what purpose does man exist, for the immediate purpose of each individual being is, according to his opinion, the perfection of its specific form. Every individual thing arrives at its perfection fully and completely when the actions that produce its form are complete. The ultimate purpose of the species is the perpetuation of this form by the repeated succession of genesis and destruction, so that there might always be a being capable of the greatest possible perfection. It seems therefore clear that according to Aristotle, who assumes the eternity of the universe, there is no occasion for the question, what is the object of the existence of the universe? If the universe is static, as Aristotle Aristotle says it is, Maimonides, Maimonides argues, then what's the purpose of our lives except to live, procreate, and die? Surely if everything has a purpose, the purpose of the human being goes beyond that sad cycle because the universe itself must have a purpose also, right? So that is to say that not just do animals have a purpose and humans have their own purpose, but there is a cosmic purpose at large beyond human life that we are partnering with the divine to help redeem. So what do we make of Aristotle 2,300 years later? Obviously, even with his brilliance, Aristotle's understanding of areas such as geography and astronomy, were proven flawed by human advancement. His scientific advancements were replaced later in the Enlightenment, completely replaced, even though they affected the ancient world so deeply. So too, his ethics proved to be badly mistaken, as he supported slavery and deemed women to be inferior human beings. Further, he appears to have been rather ethnocentric, advising Alexander the Great to be quote, uh, quoting, quoting here, a leader to the Greeks and a despot to the barbarians to look after the former as after friends and relatives and to deal with the latter as beasts or plants. But every thinker has their errors and their own historical and moral context that they're immersed in. So we cannot blame Aristotle simply for being ancient, like all ancients. More applicable for us today are the things he got right, which were truly revolutionary for the advancement of human knowledge. His method of proving arguments with science and logic were so convincing that Maimonides believed when scientific evidence is indisputable, the Torah must be reinterpreted to find new meaning. Right? Maimonides was not willing to reject science. The Torah has to be reinterpreted to align with the science of our day. But the Torah with science as complementary realms of knowledge and wisdom. So, too, Aristotle was very serious about ethics and virtues. And Rambam adopted his idea of the golden mean, that a virtue lies between two vices. In the Guide for the Perplexed, he applies this to sex and the commandment to be fruitful and multiply. And here he says something very interesting about Brit Milah, about circumcision. So um, if you'll read this closely with me. We must keep in everything the golden mean. We must not be excessive in love but must not suppress it entirely, for the law commands be fruitful and multiply. The organ is weakened by circumcision, but not destroyed by the operation. The natural faculty is left in force, but is guided against excess. Now, this is, this is um, fascinating, because Maimonides take, um, makes a point here that no one else makes, which is, he says, the purpose of circumcision is to reduce male pleasure in sex because he thinks we don't want pleasure to go to excesses and um, that the purpose there was to tame male pleasure. Now, um, this is empirically wrong um, is my understanding. Um, And this is also goes against what advocates for circumcision advocate for today. As many of you may know, there are camps today um, kind of Ideologically, in the far left, not in the far right, but in the far left, that are now opposing circumcision. Um, they're calling it barbaric, and they're actively pushing for legislation um, to to outlaw it, as they as as has been done in some parts of Europe. And part of their argument, among many other parts, part is the is that the, it should be the choice of the child, not the parent, and, the, and that it's brutality. Um, but another argument is that it it yes they 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 um uh and yeah they, they don't yeah exactly they don't go after female genital mutilation or female genital cutting in the same way um but they they try to equate those two um and part of their argument is that it, is that it reduces pleasure um and and that that's that's a form of brutality um in any case so um while the, uh, and while the science of this might be dubious We can still learn from the idea um, uh, that Aristotle and Maimonides were teaching that virtue is found not in the extremes, to use Rambam's example, either having sex constantly or avoiding it altogether as celibate, but in tempering desires to live in a guided and uh, optimal life. The fact that Maimonides thinks the goal of circumcision is limiting sexual pleasure um, is perhaps yet another great influence that Aristotle had on him. As Aristotle believed, physical sensations were a very lower access point to truth and did not think highly of sexual matters. This was something the animals do. And yes, humans will do that on a limited level, but we're much more noble. Right? The nobility of the human being is going to go beyond food and sex and pleasure. We want to be in the more noble truths of meditation and prayer and study. To move towards a conclusion here, friends, For both Aristotle and Maimonides, we are led not by ideals, but by behaviors, what Aristotle thought of as habit and what we might call halakha today. According to Maimonides, it is better, for example, to give just a little bit of tzedakah every day, every day, than to give a large sum of money all at once. Why? Because by giving each day, you're training yourself to be in the habit of pursuing justice rather than exhausting your funds in one day and not doing this justice work for the rest of the year. In the virtue ethics of Aristotle and Maimonides, the primary goal of ethical behavior is character development, going back to the beginning of our whole conversation today, right? That's what we can control most is our character. So friends, as modern Jews, there is much of the philosophy of Aristotle that we can appreciate, whether one is a mystic or a rationalist. We tend to believe it is best to invest our moral and spiritual energy in what we can logically show to be worthwhile pursuits. Further, by believing in the purpose of all things, we can gain the consciousness necessary to fulfill the purposes of our own lives. We've been annoying the world for millennia because we say, forget the status quo. Forget the status quo. We want to dream of a better world, right? We want to question how things are done and we get a lot of trouble for that, right? Um, yes. Whether whether you were Karl Marx, who wa- we're going to get to Marx later, <laughs> who wanted to challenge capitalism, whether you were the capitalist who wanted to challenge socialism or or Marxism. Right. Whether you were Freud, who wanted to challenge what's happening in the mind, um, whether you know, whether you were Einstein, who wanted to turn everything on its head or whether you were Spinoza. I mean, you know, for the longest time and it goes on and on. Jews are gonna are challenged that the things we take for granted should be accepted and not challenged. Um, and um, and that's gonna that's gonna raise some problems for <laughs> for some people out in the world. Um, and you know, and even in modernity now, I mean, if you look at P- the Mark Zuckerbergs, may, some of you might like Zuckerberg, some of you maybe not. But even just the the emergence of things like Facebook and other influence on on in the world of social media, the way humans connect to each other or look at the influence on Hollywood. And we might say this has nothing to do with Judaism, but I think it really does. Um, and Jewish comedy, the notion that we're gonna be, we're inventors, we're gonna reinvent how we do things. The Jewish influences on science and in medicine, just enormous. And um, and I and I think that that's not something uh, to downplay. That's a secret sauce, the secret sauce, as Sarah says, or as Galea says, and, oh, and Sarah's the secret sauce. Yes, and this is also the secret sauce of how do we impart to our children and grandchildren this idea that there are things that are reverent and sacred, right? That we should be reverential towards, that we we cherish. Um, and yet um, we we're, we are people of questioning, right? And yet the other thing we do, we don't just question the same things over, and over. Our questions get better. We don't just ask the same questions when we're six as when we're 16, as in when we're 60. Right, we mature. We don't question everything. We we move on from some questions. We live with imperfect conclusions to questions, and we move on to better questions. Right, and um, and so yes, thank you for that. And that is what I hope more than anything we do in this in our in our in this program together, um, that we don't just leave saying I found a perfect truth. That we leave with better questions about what Judaism is about, what our lives are about, what is morally good what is absolutely true or not absolute at all. And with that note, I wish everyone a beautiful day, a meaningful Yom HaShoah. I invite you to our VBM program on Thursday on Tikkun Olam with Rabbi Will Friedman. And um, uh, I hope everyone um, stays healthy and joyful. Thank you so much for joining.